This episode of Managing Minds refers to sexual assault and PTSD. If it raises issues for you, there's always somewhere to turn, like beyondblue.org.au, or you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. I found ways of avoiding ever having to tell my workplace because I was just too afraid of their response. Some of the things that make a workplace unhealthy are obvious. Bullying, sexism or 15-hour workdays. But there's something else lurking beneath these issues, something that has a huge impact on the mental health of workplaces across Australia every day. My name is Anna McAfee and in this episode of Managing Minds, we're going to talk about culture. Me Too and Black Lives Matter have generated a lot of talk about workplace culture right up to the highest levels of government. When you look at the culture around mental health in your workplace, sometimes it's hard to see what's really happening. Even the sickest culture can be normalized when you're living it every day. Culture is about the politics in your organization. It's about stigma and how you treat staff. It's about taking rhetoric from the boardroom and making it part of your team's day-to-day experience. Claire Babbage has worked in social and corrective services and has supported many corporate teams through complex change processes. I asked her what a healthy culture actually looks like. A healthy workplace is one that deals with them with compassion and empathy, but within, you know, the appropriate responsibilities that they have as an employer. They're not a mental health service and a place where these things are not considered any more difficult to talk about than, you know, the the time when I fractured my heel and had to go to work and return to work in a moon boot and on crutches. Often I wonder, do companies um, and the managers within companies see mental health and people as a fixed thing, not a fluid thing? Yet in reality, mental health changes just as someone's physical health does. I think people don't understand the subtleties of it. I don't think that they understand everybody's individual experience of it is different. And because there is almost a stigma about asking a question, they never find out. Seventy-five percent of Australians with a mental illness have reported experiencing stigma. Stigma is huge. It's so big that people feel nervous just asking a question about mental health. We perceive shame, and that creates massive barriers to getting help. Dr Katrina Sanders is the Chief Medical Officer for the Australian Federal Police. I think if you're looking at the the police or the troops on the ground, stigma is far less prevalent than self-stigma, that perception that you would be letting down your team and letting down your mates. But I think as you move towards that middle management structure, uh, that that concept of stigma, although it's decreasing, I, I think it still I think it still does exist. Uh, are there any specific things that you have found that have worked when it comes to reducing stigma? The shared experience on the ground in small groups through peers is of critical importance and huge value. I think the second component 
is leadership and the role that leadership play in sending this message. And the more they talk about it, the more other people will talk about it as well. The third thing, uh, I think resourcing as in time and effort is given in a critical incident or when people are acutely unwell, that's almost too late. If we can educate people about the pathway of perhaps being well or unwell and, and how to navigate out of that and what support is available, if we can provide that education really early on, then it does start to normalise it and, it and it starts to really educate the group that there are options available. So again, the advice is that we need to talk about and normalise mental health. Craig Semple worked as a detective in the police force for over 20 years. I was interested to hear about his perspective from within that environment. Without education, without people being taught about the signs and symptoms and what it's like to, to live with these illnesses and, and the whole recovery process, you're sort of left in a world of ignorance. And that's where I think a lot of negative attitudes is where a lot of stigma comes from as well so building mental health literacy not only within managers themselves but but within their teams as well so providing that training providing that awareness but not just saying that we've we're trying to build a good supportive culture but, but actually demonstrating it through the way that members of their team will see them stepping in and helping out another member of the team and, and seeing them through that whole process even though mentally healthy workplaces are now part of the conversation the stigma surrounding mental health has far from disappeared. Camille Wilson works as a mental health consultant and knows about this stigma all too well. You'd think someone in HR, someone with previous lived experience of mental health, studied psychology at university, she would know what to do when she got unwell. But it's funny, I, I had all the knowledge in the world, but when it's yourself going through it, it's really hard to have the courage to speak up. I was a high performer at work. I didn't want people to think less of me. I didn't want people to think I couldn't do my job. So I would go to the toilets and have a panic attack in the bathroom if I needed to. Or if I got triggered, I'd just run off outside and I'd you know, run behind a tree or something and have, my, have a little bit of a cry behind the tree. It took me almost a year to actually tell my workplace. And I was in a really, really bad place by the time I did that. Creating an open culture at work encourages people to come forward sooner. And that is good, because the longer the problem goes on, the harder it is to fix. So how, as a manager, can you help create a culture where the people you're leading feel comfortable telling you where they're at? How can you break stigma and make it easy for someone to tell you that they're not okay or that something isn't working for them? We know one of the biggest instigators for change is getting a leadership buy-in. For a good leadership team to progress in a way that creates a sustainable, effective culture change, you need to have leadership teams who are open to that feedback, who are open to making some difficult calls in terms of their own behaviours. So to make a difference, you need the leadership team on side. That's easy to say, but not so easy to do. So how do you do it? How do you approach one of your organisation's leaders and suggest the culture needs to change? Try and talk the language of a leadership team. Talk the language of the impact to productivity and performance. Create a business case 
to be able to share with leadership, to bring them on board, to understand the importance of this. Companies don't always say yes straight away. And they do need to slowly come to terms with the fact that there is opportunities in their organisation. She also says that teams need to listen to people with experience, which goes beyond psychologists and change experts. What happens when we do culture change? We go, okay, we have one leader who's the sponsor and then we'll get five people part of the project team. So half the room's HR and then half the room are people who are probably being forced to be in the room. The massive opportunity companies have missed is that you've missed the lived experience of mental health. If you talk to pretty much any person lived experience mental health, they have so much knowledge about what works, what doesn't. It's an absolute golden nugget of enthusiasm when it comes to lived experience people. But so many times I work with organizations and they don't even know who in the organization has lived experience. They don't even know who's enthusiastic about mental health. And you've completely missed a massive opportunity for significant culture change by not identifying your natural champions. Finding your natural champions might include people with lived experience, but not everyone with lived experience wants to or should have to disclose this in a workplace or be part of a mental health focus group. The reality is that unless the culture of your organisation is open to this, revealing your mental health challenges just might not feel like an option. And that's part of the stigma for mental illness is that I have to keep it under, under wraps because if I let people know that I'm weak, there's going to be negative consequences. Dr. James Donnelly is a lecturer in psychology at Southern Cross University and a practicing psychologist. Yeah, you do have to kind of monitor uh, the squeaky wheels as well as the what we considered people who have an internalizing kind of style. When things get hard for them, they go deep inside, they turn inside, they stop interacting with others, they stop asking for help, and that's their way of coping. So for the manager to be able to detect that change from baseline, no matter what it happens to be, for some people who are, are, are confident in coming forward and saying, you know, I need some help here. You have to think about that in cultural terms. What are the reasonable expectations that people can have if they're unwell? They have a doctor's certificate, they need some sick leave. That's the way it is. But if the job is defined that they need to do certain kinds of things, they'll know, this is what I sign on for. And it may be that my duties might have to change because my capacity to do that job is not what it used to be. And to be able to do that in a compassionate way and to understand this isn't for forever and to make that clear and to kind of document that it's not for forever. You're going to be evaluated again once you've had some treatment, have had the support, had a chance to recover. You're not gone. We're not giving up on you. But we're at, this is what we need to do right now to support you because we realize you're communicating to us that I'm not able to do this part of my job right now. How are you going? I'm Serkin. Um, I have just started a business that provides uh, consulting services for WHS injury management. I am an avid outdoor entertainment type person. Love my fishing, um, love my camping, love the beach. Um, outside of that, I have a dog that I love um, and I'm very, very passionate about WHS. 
I started my work in a New South Wales government agency in January of 2014. About a year prior to me starting there, I was required to uh, be part of an investigation for a historical sexual assault. Also in that first week of employment, my father had succumbed to liver cirrhosis and was hospitalised for a complete week. Um, so I had to take about five days off. Um, the principal manager and the manager of the section had looked at me and said, well, look, if you can give us a medical certificate for your, for your time at the hospital with your father, um, I think we can um, try and allow you to keep your job. By the way, we're not actually going to pay you for that week um, and we're not going to consider special leave because it's your second week and you're still on probation. I said to myself, well, okay, you need this job. You're good at what you do. Um, you need to pull your socks up and need to keep doing. Forget about your problems, mate. Over the next six months, um, the treatment got more intensive for my, uh, what was now diagnosed as PTSD, uh, for my historical sexual assault issues. My team leader approached me and said, I'd love to have, I'd like to, I'd love to take you out for a coffee and have an informal chat with you. That I think, oh, well, my team leader's taken an interest in me. Okay, maybe this will be an opportunity to, to let him know what's going on. Um, I'm going through a police investigation. I'm waking up with uh, cold sweats. I'm hardly sleeping. And this is the state you're seeing me in day to day. At the end of that conversation, the look that I saw in my team leader's eyes was, one of two things, either you're going through it, mate, and I, I, I'm here for you, or it's, mate, you're going through it and I'm about to do something I don't want to do. Following the conversation, I didn't really get a good vibe from my team leader, so I actually looked up the policy and procedure on what happens when there's an informal meeting like that, and I found they were actually starting a process for determining my fitness for work. I actually needed to find a friend to talk to within the organisation, i.e., hey, I know that my behaviours are, are kind of changing, um, but if I talk to someone within HR um, at, as a trusted source, it's a trusted source and nothing would go past. The person that I was dealing with in HR, every single conversation I had with them, they would turn around to the principal manager of the floor and go and explain things to them. I got to a point where in my sleep, I'd be scratching myself in my face uh, because that's just how I'd be sleeping. And when I walked in one day and I'd spoken to the HR professional about what was going on, uh, they basically said, you know, take a couple of days off. As I walked back to my desk, the principal manager turned around to me and said, maybe you need to start cutting your nails. And then I looked at them and I said, what do you mean by that? Oh, no, nothing. I just had a chat with someone. Maybe you start cutting your nails with a big gleeful smile. And that was basically the kicker. I said, yeah, this is where I need to leave. This place is not going to be the place for me. Sirkan's experience is extreme. Not all cultural issues play out in such a confronting way. In large organisations, creating trust between management and workers can be challenging, particularly when policies and procedures don't always ensure confidentiality. As a middle manager, you can feel like you don't have much sway, but it's worth taking the time to understand your organisation's policies and procedures when it comes to mental health. 
You'll have a middle manager who loves their workers, who will go to the earth's end to try and help them with the resources and the policies and procedures they can deal with. If a policy and procedure turns around and says, as a middle manager, you need to deal with it at the coalface, great. However, if it gets to a point where it requires escalation, you need to do A, B and C. Once an escalation points gets triggered, um, that middle manager essentially loses all power or drive to be able to do what they feel they need to do for the worker because a policy and procedure might turn around and say you need to report it to HR and HR get involved and there's an added cog to the machine and then there's basically the person mistrust the whole organisation. Hey, you told me this was going to be between me and you and you had all the, the tools to be able to help me. Often when you're a manager in an organisation with poor culture, you are encouraged to manage out and get rid of staff who are struggling. So that's going down a performance management path as soon as a staff member is going through a hard time, rather than supporting them and adjusting to their needs. Managing out employees with mental health issues can seem like a simple solution. Just get rid of the problem rather than delving into someone's personal life. What else are you losing when you manage staff out? They lose the opportunity to build something within an organisation and spread it in such a way where they actually fix things. Let's be straight here. Mental ill health costs Australian workplaces $4.7 billion each year in absenteeism. But for every dollar you spend on improving your mental health strategies and your culture, you will actually save $2.30 on the cost of mental ill health. There's a, a managerial cost because it means that there's a huge amount of focus from the manager trying to deal with that situation. It's very HR heavy. It's quite stressful. It takes a lot of their time. It actually takes them away from focusing on productivity and getting the team working well. But there's also a massive cost. You know, businesses don't always calculate those things when you are rehiring or training someone or you manage them out in a way that then costs additional amounts to a business if it's not done really well. Then when teams see that that's how things are dealt with and that becomes part of the culture of the organization, it stops people from speaking up. They then don't feel safe. There are issues then with psychological safety in the workplace and instead of just asking for help early, things often get left until later. And then it's a much bigger problem for managers to deal with. And it becomes something that really is out of the outside of their comfort zone. It's always best to do something early than late. Somebody with lived experience of difficulty who also knows how to manage that and to recover, not only has that lived experience as a diverse voice, but they also have that experience of recovery and resilience and self-management and self-awareness, which are actually hugely important soft skills for businesses to have. Also, we often find that, you know, the person that we would often call Fred the disturber um, if Fred leaves or Fred goes off sick, somebody else comes along to take their place. And so the actual dynamic in the team, the way that conversations are being uh, dealt with, maybe how voices are not being heard, doesn't get fixed. So instead of Fred, you have Jane. When it comes to a mental health issue, this can feel a bit like, oh, this is too much. This is going to take too much time. And actually, it 
then it becomes about, well, it's a mistake to think as a manager, you have to manage someone else's mental health or health or well-being. You don't have to manage it. You have to create an environment where your team can manage their own well and with support. Fixing the culture of a workplace can be complex, especially when it comes to large organisational change. Negotiating between leadership, policies and your employees can seem like an impossible minefield, particularly on top of your daily workload. So what steps can you take right now to make an immediate difference to the culture of your organisation? Mid-level leaders are absolutely key. Um, and I know that we've talked recently a lot and in the news has been a lot about like leadership at the top and culture and leading that culture from the top. I don't, uh, I don't disagree that that is important, but I think in change programs, businesses often miss out or, or don't utilize the power of that middle part of their organization. I think that as a manager, you can have a conversation and set a team culture. Like, I don't think that that's too difficult. I don't think that's um, too hard. If you want to have a way that your team works and an agreed culture within that team, everybody knows what it is. I think that's manageable and it's manageable in quite a short term. So if, as a manager, if I'm in charge of the finance team or if I'm in charge of marketing or if I'm in charge of HR, it's about trying to make sure that we then have a conversation about, so what does that mean for us and how we make decisions here? What is the story of how that applies here? What does that mean for us? When we're talking about culture, it's not only about culture around mental health. All members of your team deserve to feel safe. Think about how your team talks to each other. Be clear about dangerous jokes and unconscious bias and create an environment where everyone feels safe and there is a shared purpose with clear values. Agree on your targets, on your roles, and on your shared responsibility when it comes to productivity. And then follow through on your agreed culture and do what you say you will do. So you've got one organisation who does it very, very well because they listen to its people and base all the policies and procedures off a needs basis. Or then you've got the other type of organisation who loves mental health in the boardroom. However, when it comes to walking the walk, um, it unfortunately falls down. You actually need to consult with your staff week in, week out, month in, month out to actually find out what's happening on the ground and tailor an approach in such a way you are able to access programs quickly and efficiently for staff when they want it and need it. And far too often what I've found with where organisations fall down is, yep, we're going to go on the path of a mentally healthy workplace, so to speak. However, they haven't put the back, uh, the back end processes or the right people in place to make sure things move as quickly as the organisational needs do. Big cultural change needs to come from leadership, but by improving the culture of your own team, you can have a positive effect on their mental health and also the business as a whole. As a manager, you shouldn't underestimate the impact you can have on a workplace culture, both positive and negative. A healthy workplace is built on open and trusting relationships, understanding the team around you, and creating an environment where people are comfortable talking about how they feel 
and what they need. Remember, not everyone with lived experience of mental health is going to feel comfortable talking about this openly. You can find extra links to resources and other information on our website, managingmindspodcast.com.au and also on our LinkedIn page. Up next on Managing Minds, we talk about burnout. What causes it? How do you know if you have it? And what you can do to prevent burnout happening to the people around you. The the core of the burnout issue is that I actually care about what I'm doing or where I am. And there's something in here that's refusing to move into a better space. Managing Minds is a headline productions podcast made in partnership with the State Insurance Regulatory Authority. Our host is Anna McAfee. This series has been produced and edited by Simon Portis. Fact-checking is done by Dr James Donnelly. And the executive producer is me, Liz Keane.